Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. If you're one of those people who has yet to sign up for free to be part of our one of a kind, like really, I think this is the first time something like this has been attempted in the Catholic world, revealed experience, May 13th to the 15th. If you have not yet signed up for this, it is free. Please click the link in the show notes to sign up for free to be part of this really exciting experience. You know, there's nothing like a live event where you're in an intimate setting. That's what this is be, is going to be. We've all been at Catholic conferences where the speakers are way up on stage and there are hundreds or even thousands of people there. And it just seems like there's this barrier between you and the speakers. We are having an intimate gathering. There are only going to have like 80 people in person. And Father Mike Schmitz is going to be there. Jeff Cabins is going to be there. Jackie and Bobby Angel will be there. Matt Frad, Jason Everett, uh, yours truly, Damon Owens, uh, Jen Settle, Bill Dunahy, Abby Ford. Uh, we have such a bang-up line lineup. Bang-up lineup? Hmm. Oh. Did I mean to say that? Does I'm that not sound sure. weird? That's kind of interesting. Bang up lineup. <laughs> I don't. You know what I mean. We have a great, great list of speakers coming, and there's nothing like that intimate experience, uh, which we're really going to be capturing with roaming cameras. This is not going to be a talking heads kind of thing. Uh, we want our online participants to have the the feel of a real, unique, exciting, uh, in in person as much as you can feel that via video. Uh, watch it from your home, participate from home. There, there are going to be keynote talks from all these great guys and gals, and then there are going to be more intimate conversations where we're sitting down on a comfy couch and just sharing our hearts about what's going on in the world and how to inject hope into it. And yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a really, really exciting event. If you have not signed up, you can do so for free. Of course, you can get a premium pass, too, to get all the extra goodies, but sign up for free at least. So go to the link in the show notes to learn more. It's it's a live event, so um, May 13th to the 15th. Ready for a question from a patron? We sure are. This is from an anonymous patron who says, Hi, Christopher and Wendy. I want to say thank you for all the wisdom you've shared on all your podcasts and other social media platforms. It was divine providence that led me to your podcast and primarily the teachings of the theology of the body during the first COVID shutdown. Mm. It has blessed me in so many ways and opened my eyes to the reality of God's plan for sexuality, which I had no idea prior that this world of beauty and truth existed. Wow. Awesome. I've been in a non-defined relationship slash friendship with a man from my parish for a few years now. He really loves the Lord, but he struggles to control his passions and struggles with lust and has many wounds from his past. Despite his struggles, I still feel attracted to him and love him or could love him in marriage if the Lord wills it one day. My spiritual director has advised me to continue to work with the Lord on healing my heart and my own wounds from my past, primarily a father wound. 
My spiritual director says that as of now, I am unable to discern or see clearly because of the attachments that were formed in my relationship with this man, because we have fallen into sin. You talk a lot about good arrows on the podcast, and it has blessed my heart in many ways. My question then is, how do I train my heart, mind, body, and soul to gravitate toward good arrows and I'm constantly fearing that I need to avoid him in order mm. to avoid the near occasion of sin, that I need to break the attachment that exists between us. Time passes and we stay strong until an avoidable fall because of putting ourselves in the near occasion of sin. We'll recommit to creating distance. It often produces feelings of abandonment for me. I refuse to despair, but it's a very painful experience for me. I'm trying to open my heart to the Lord and work on building good arrows to replace the misdirected arrows of our past sins. I'd love to hear your insights. Bless you, dear person, dear sister. There's so much you've shared that already shows you're on the journey. Uh, you take your Christian life seriously. You're in spiritual direction. You're you're listening and following the lead of your spiritual director. That is all very good. You're learning more about the Catholic faith and particularly how the theology of the body illuminates our entire Catholic faith. You are already on the journey, my dear sister. So praise God for that. There are so many signs of, of the work of grace in your life. Praise God. I think there are some some errors we can fall into along our journey of purification. And one of the main errors we fall into is, to give it a fancy word, is iconoclasm. What is iconoclasm? So iconoclasm, if you want to go back to the history of how this vocabulary came into the church, we have to go back to what an icon is. An icon, and there's a specific sense that we're talking of icons, like religious paintings, um, a specific kind of religious painting is called an icon. And in the Eastern tradition of Christianity in particular, it's called uh, a window to heaven. That's what an icon is. So I'm looking at an icon in my office where we're recording this podcast right now. I'm looking at an icon of the resurrection uh, in that Eastern style of iconography. And here we have the risen Christ. This icon is meant to open my heart, my mind, my yearning, to the things of heaven. This earthly icon painted on wood is a window to heaven. If I stop with my yearning at the paint and the wood, I turn the icon into an idol. There is always this temptation with holy things to idolize them. Holy things that God intends to lead us to Him we, in our broken humanity, have this tendency to idolize the good things God has created to lead us to Him. That's what sexual sin is. We are turning an icon—this is what human sexuality is—it is an icon, a, cre a created icon, something that God Himself created as an icon, meaning a window into heavenly mysteries. Mm. St. Paul says this directly vividly and clearly uh, summarizing the entire biblical tradition on this, uh, that, that sexual love, married love, to make 
make the point more clearly, married love, the marital union throughout the Old Testament was this sign understood that communicated the way God loved Israel. Uh, there are some bold, erotic images in the Old Testament, Pope Benedict XVI says, all of which reveals that God loves us with this passionate love of a bridegroom for his bride. This comes to super abundant fulfillment in the New Testament when Christ the bridegroom is made flesh, and it's stated explicitly in a passage that summarizes the whole Bible according to St. John Paul II, Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32, you can't have listened to this podcast without have, <laughs> having heard me and Wendy talk about this. But here we go again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. Uh, Paul could have just as well said, this is a great icon, a great window to heaven uh, that refers to Christ and the church. The, the way we fall into sin is by turning that icon into an idol. But there's another way we can fall into sin. When we turn the icon into an idol, we can think the solution is to throw away the icon because we think the icon just keeps getting me in trouble. So the solution is to get rid of the icon so I no longer fall into this trouble. That is the heresy and heresy is always a sin, that is the heresy of iconoclasm. The church intervened, and, and I'm going back into the history of specifically that religious icon. This was the tendency, and this was the 700s. People were falling into the temptation to idolize, I was about to say idolatrize, to <laughs> idolize these religious icons. And the response of many because they saw people falling into the sin of idolatry with these icons, their response was to burn the icons. The church intervened at a council, I believe it was the Council of Nicaea, maybe the Second Council of Nicaea, I don't have that history exactly right, uh, perhaps, um, but at, at one of the very important councils of the church, the church intervened and said, we do not worship icons, nor do we destroy icons. All of this is based on the very principle that the material world was created by God to transfer these divine mysteries into this world. And chief among them is the mystery of our creation as male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh. So my dear sister, all of that is just some background to say, I think you're falling into, perhaps, you're falling into both of these errors idolatry on the one hand, that's when you're falling into the explicit sexual sin, but then the overreaction to that sin, which is you yourself, meaning this man you love, his body, proximity to him, um, that itself is a sin. Or yes, it could be an occasion of sin, but we could, we could, we can fall into this tendency of blaming the body itself. This is the heresy of Manichaeism. This is the heresy of iconoclasm. This is the heresy of Puritanism. Uh, it goes under many names, but this whole idea of not destroying the icon, but allowing things we have idolized to be 
purified in our hearts. We really have three choices here. And I talk about this in lots of different ways, but here's, here's a, a way that's recently come to me to, to unfold this. The three choices here with eros, with the human body, sexual attraction, uh, this person in your life, here are three choices. We will idolize, despise, or liturgize. And what you're really after here, my dear sister, is liturgizing. What does that mean? It means allowing God's grace to transform your longing for love, for union with this man, into something liturgical. What is the liturgy? Liturgy is where we take the stuff of this world, our very lives first and foremost, but think of what we're putting on the altar, mm -hmm. bread and wine, the stuff of this world, uh, candles, fire, flowers all surround the altar, the stuff of this world. These are liturgical realities. Water is a liturgical reality. Oil squeezed out of olives is a liturgical reality. The male and female body because the joining of man and woman in marriage is a liturgical reality. Uh, the male and female body is a liturgical reality. We, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in the liturgy. This is what saves us both from idolatry and from iconoclasm. I'd, I'd recommend my book called At the Heart of the Gospel. And if I do say so myself, <laughs> uh, the, the one chapter in that book is probably the most important thing I've ever written in all mm -hmm. that I've written over the years. And that chapter in that book at the heart of the gospel is called The Narrow Way Between Idolatry and Iconoclasm. This is the journey that you are on, my dear sister. And it involves, so here I'll quote John Paul II, it involves an ongoing process of painful purifications, and I think you're already experiencing those painful purifications. And it'll take you through what the mystics call the dark night, where it seems like everything is falling away, where it seems like maybe there's no satisfaction whatsoever to be had of your heart's desire, and you must pass through that night in order for that yearning to be purified and directed rightly. But as we allow ourselves, again, this is John Paul II, as we allow ourselves those purifications, as we say yes to them, and we pass through that dark night, it leads, he says, in various possible ways to the ecstatic joy, the ineffable ecstasy of what the saints and mystics call nuptial union with the Lord. Only in as much as we are in pursuit of that ultimate union with the Lord will we be able to avoid both the sins of idolatry on the one hand and iconoclasm on the other. Mm. Just a few thoughts to add to that. I, I actually have been reminded as you've been talking of an experience I had related to this um, before you and I were dating, but we knew one another, I I was um, in my early 20s, and I often would be distracted during Mass by imagining my wedding. 
so that I'm supposed to be present to the mass that I'm participating in. To the wedding in, of the lamb. But my brain is planning my wedding. It's imagining songs to sing for the wedding or readings or decoration of my home parish or things like that that are my mind would just wander away and you know i wouldn't be paying attention to the mass at all and in some way i know that there was like a distraction from the mass a distraction from the lord that really was kind of taking that icon of marriage and having an idolatry of it like as if the best thing mm. is my wedding mass instead of the mass i'm in right now <laughs> and one day it was the day after i had heard you christopher give a presentation on theology of the body the next or maybe two days later something like that i was in mass and i was so inspired by learning about theology of the body that I just felt such a desire to be present to this Mass, mm. you know, and not have that distraction. And I remember specifically, as I would find my thoughts wander, there was something in me that wanted to be mad at myself, you know, like, oh, you did it again, you started thinking about that. And instead of being mad at myself, I felt like I heard mm. the Lord say, I love you. Awesome. I love you. You know, like, it's okay. I know your mind just wandered. I love you. And it was like the voice of the true bridegroom. Like, I'm who you're looking for. I love you in your weakness. I I am truly here, present right now. And it, so it brought my heart and mind back to the true mm. worship. Beautiful, beautiful. And I, I just share that as a personal kind of not super dramatic, but it was meaningful to me um, of that just that contrast between, uh, you know, the temptation in me to reject myself because I had, you know, been distracted and the Lord's response to me, which was to let me know he's He present. was wooing you, Wendy. He was. He was, he was calling mm -hmm. your heart. Yeah, it was and very powerful. That's how we heal. Yeah. To, to, but you, what's powerful about the shore, shore you stared, <laughs> story you shared, is that you you had ears to hear that call mm. and we need to train our ears to hear the lord's call in that way mm -hmm. my dear sister who asked this question the lord is wooing you he's wooing you to himself and that is how good eros conquers bad eros by listening to the way he woos us and following those wooings, what are the things that that excite your heart? Um, what things in nature bless you? What music uh, blesses your heart? What stories or movies bless your heart? God can use anything and everything to woo us, and He is He is as what my former professor, Monsignor Albacete, used to say: He's wooing you through every drop of rain. He's wooing you through every blade of grass. Uh, go out into God's creation and, and pay attention to the things that, that excite your heart, that awaken your heart. That's learning to listen to the Lord's wooing. The Lord, as He woos us and as we listen, our hearts get more and more directed to Him, and we come to treasure His promises of fulfilling those deepest yearnings. 
And the more we treasure those promises, the less, and trust in those promises, the less we're going to be tempted to take those desires to things that are satisfy us for a moment and then leave us on the other side uh, not only unfulfilled, but but damaged. Uh, so, dear sister, you are on the journey. Mm-hmm. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And please, if you haven't already considered taking a course through the Theology of the Body Institute, please consider that. If you haven't already signed up for the Revealed event, please consider that. And as a patron, you have access to the various retreats we offer our patrons. Uh, I'd suggest that you and this man you love maybe take the uh, retreat that we offered our patrons on sexual healing with Bob Schutz and another one we offered on sexual healing with the Desert Ministry teams. Um, please go check that out in your patron website and, and make sure you're, you're really uh, taking advantage of all the benefits we offer our mm-hmm. patrons. Our next question is from a listener named Ash. Hello, Ash. Hi. So I recently read your book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, and I need some clarification on the NFP part. You mentioned that it should be done only for just reasons to avoid a baby. I will be getting married soon, and I'm currently studying for a professional degree. Is practicing NFP for the first year or two years of marriage till I'm done with my courses a just reason for not trying for a baby? I can't answer that question. What? <laughs> Come on now. Give it I a can whirl. give some I can give some guidance. Yeah. But I can't provide the answer for this person because the responsibility to to ask and answer that question is squarely on your own shoulders. And John Paul II says that taking that responsibility for yourself to discern for yourself, uh, do you have just reasons, that that itself is part of specifically practicing responsible parenthood. It means the responsibility is yours. Wendy, you and I have been here many times in our marriage where we've had to discern this question. Mm -hmm. And yes, we sought guidance from people we trusted. And I am happy to offer some guidance uh, that I hope will help. Uh, but, But I started off by saying I can't answer your question specifically to put the responsibility where alone it it belongs which is is on your shoulders go to those you trust get guidance but no one can answer that question for you and one thing i just want to say when you've just read good news about sex and marriage for the first time is obviously you're learning a different approach to this whole question than is what the world proposes. And I just want to illuminate that a tiny bit more. There's lots that can be said on that and that is in the book. But in our culture, when we we do have some connection that people get married, they might have children. That's not totally, you know, totally disconnected. But we tend to think that in marriage, we are going to avoid children through contraception until we decide it's right. the right time for right. us to have a baby. And then we're going to hope that we can reverse the actions we've taken and right. and there will be a baby. Um, we know that that doesn't always work out. But the whole framework of thinking that is is a total contrast from what the Lord is presenting to us through his church, 
where we are recognizing the expression of marriage in the union of the man and woman naturally leads to children yes and that that is blessed by god and it's and good good it is good and so we don't what we're trying to reorient our minds to understand and the scripture be transformed by the renewing of your mm. mind it's just in my coming to me right now is that our it's on us to first of all rejoice in the lord's plan for us as a husband and wife and his plan to bring children into the world through our union and to not look at it as something we avoid until we decide we're ready but rather discern do we even have a reason to yes. avoid what god wants to um you know naturally bring forth from our union so it's i just such, to throw such that a out. good point wendy i'm so glad you brought that up yeah when you go into marriage with the default we're not going to have children until it's the it should be the reverse we're going to have children unless mm, yeah and the unless is do i have a just reason to be abstaining from intercourse during the fertile time to avoid a child and the guidelines that the church provides are are not extensive uh financial reasons health reasons Psycho, even psychological health reasons could all be just reasons. And so do you have a just reason to, to get this degree before having children? You might. You might. You really might. But you might not. I, I, that's why I can't really answer mm -hmm. that question. Mm -hmm. I can speak from our own experience. We got married when I was in graduate school, and we knew it was very important long-term for me to have this degree to be able to provide right. long-term for our family. And we also needed you to be working when I was in graduate school to provide for us while I was in graduate school. Right. So we discerned with uh, the help of people we, we knew and trusted and our, our understanding of the clear teaching of the church, we discerned that we had just reason, which was a, a financial reason, long-term providing for our family, to abstain during the fertile time, I think it was the first, I don't know, was it nine months of our marriage or year of our marriage? Something like it was it was the first stretch yeah. of our yeah. of our marriage. But as soon as we got to the stage in our marriage where we knew we no longer had just reason to be avoiding, we we no longer abstained during mm -hmm. the fertile time. So I'm so glad. And I want to affirm it. It's especially in our day and age, it's so rare that somebody like you would would take it as seriously as you are and even pose such a question. So I want to affirm you for that. It's a beautiful grace, already evident that grace is working in your life. Um, I hope the this what we just said provided some guidance for you. But now it's time to take responsibility and really discern that mm. for yourself. And mm. that again is integral to responsible parenthood. When when we I know in my own life, sometimes I want other people to make hard decisions for me. And what I'm really doing is I'm saying, here, you take the responsibility on your shoulders. There are, there are times specifically like in this situation where the responsibility is squarely ours and we need to discern. So I hope that was helpful. Bless you. Bless you in that discernment. Our next question is from a listener named Deborah. Hello, Deborah. On one of your podcast episodes, Christopher, you commented that something John Paul II said was so telling of his heart 
and the way he sees the person. And I was wondering, how can I see the persons that are in my life? How can I know their hearts? I know I'm very selfish and I often think only about my problems. I want to change this and be able to see the person so that I can help them or know them better. What a beautiful question, Deborah. Thank you so much for submitting that to us. I hope we can offer some reflections that that help you. That is the cry of the heart. St. Augustine said that the deepest desire of the heart is to see another and to be seen by that other's loving gaze. And yet we all, we all start out in this fallen world as the blind man in the gospel who has to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. And here we can recognize the kind of seeing we're talking about. It, it's a deep interior vision. Uh, Jesus says, they look but do not see. And that's what he's getting at. They, they look. You can see with your eyes, but the deeper vision has has escaped you, or or you've been blinded to this deeper way of seeing. And the invitation of the gospel itself, this is right in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the invitation Jesus puts out to everyone after he says, these are the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, are, what do you want? What are you looking for? That's critical. And you've already gotten, Deborah, right, right down to the heart of it. You're saying, I want to see. I want to see. I want to see people. To see people rightly is to love people rightly. And you're recognizing you're already running into the, the selfishness in your heart that blinds you. The fact that you're already aware of that. Again, as I said to our other questioners, uh, you can tell already from your question that grace is already at work. You can't get to the place you are, Deborah, without grace already being operative. And you can trust Grace is going to finish the work it has begun in you. So the first question Jesus asks, what do you want? You've already gotten to a really clear answer to that question. I want to see. I want to love people better. I want to overcome my selfishness. The second thing, right after that, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, is the invitation, come and become one who sees. Mm -hmm. And that come is the invitation to follow him. And that following him is where the rub happens, where the difficulties come, where the struggle occurs, where the resistance happens. Because to follow him means to follow him the whole way in and through death, a, a real dying, a real scourging, a real agony in the garden. This struck me so profoundly on Holy Thursday this year. Uh, I, I was doing my Holy Thursday meditation on the agony in the garden, and I remembered something I had learned when we toured the Holy Land and we went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And our tour guide revealed to us, I had never known this, it's like, oh my gosh, how could I be Catholic my whole life mm. and not know this? The word Gethsemane is, is uh, Aramaic word, got samane, or something like that, and it means olive press. The, the, the agony in the garden is where Jesus himself is becoming 
the oil poured out to heal mm. our wounds. And when you, I would encourage everybody, Google or go to YouTube and, and just type in Olive Press and watch some videos of the, the more old-fashioned way that olive was olive oil was extracted from olives. And when you see the pressure that was required to get this olive oil out of the olives, you will, you will have a very visceral image of the agony in the garden. Come and become one who sees. Our blindness needs to be healed by following Jesus in and through that olive press, if you will, to come out the other side where we can see in a resurrected way. The prerequisite for resurrection with Jesus is dying with Jesus. St. Paul says we carry the death of the Lord in our bodies so that the life of the Lord might also be manifested in our bodies. And I also want to say, just as, as someone who's been, I've been taking my, my journey with the Lord seriously since my early 20s, and that was 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. And there, there is no arrival point here. It's not like you can say, oh, but I already went through that agony with Jesus. <laughs> there is more. There is always more. We carry our, continually, we carry in our bodies the death of the Lord so that the life of the Lord might be manifested. There are, of course, uh, thanks be to God, there are times in the journey where we're entering into new graces and we're rejoicing in them, and there's a bit of a respite from the agony, from the uh, dying with Jesus, and we're really living those joyful mysteries, the, yes, the joyful, but even more the glorious mysteries. But those glorious mysteries are, are yet again, get ready, because there will be another cross to carry, there will be another journey to go on, there will be another time to enter that agony of the olive press, because there's always more to see. You know, the, the, the famous line in Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Uh, it's, it's misleading. <laughs> it would be more accurate to sing, um, you know, I, I once was blind, and now I see a little bit more. <laughs> Just think of the blind man. This is another story from the gospel where the blind man is touched by Jesus, and he's healed to some extent. But Jesus says, what do you see? And he says, I can see a little bit, but people look like walking trees. Don't know exactly what that means, but the point, or one of the points anyway, is that he needed to be touched again. Naaman, when he was um, told to wash in the Jordan to be cleansed of his leprosy, he had to be washed seven times. Of course, seven is a very significant number. It means you have to wash as many times as required until you become perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Mm. That means going back into those waters repeatedly, over and over and over again in our life. Dear Deborah, you are already on that journey. Cry out from the depths of your heart, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. He is the only one who can give you the kind of sight you are desiring. There's no book you can read. There's no trick you can do. There's no, well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven steps, and now, now I can see. It is, it is taking up your cross and following and trusting 
that he does will to give you sight. And that's another one of those stories in the gospel. If you will it, Lord, you can, you can make me whole, or you can heal me, or you can give me sight. And Jesus says, I do will it. Mm-hmm. Dear Deborah, present your desire to the Lord to see. He does will for you to see. And the grace that is already at work with you, work in you, will come to completion. Something just striking me from this question. I love all the things you shared with Deborah. They are speaking to my heart as well. Um, just the the very images of Jesus's interactions with people in the Scripture are so helpful in this because that's what we're looking yes. to do. We want to become like the Lord. So that's just every one of those gospel stories is really helpful to to have this transformation. And can I can I encourage Deborah and all our listeners do some some imaginative prayer by going through those scriptures of of the healing of the blind man and and you're the blind man. Mm-hmm. And what is Jesus saying to you? Put yourself right in there. That's lexio divina, the whole practice of of that deep prayerful reading of scripture. Yeah. Um just something I wanted to say is that um when Christopher says that um the way John Paul sees the person, uh, he's not saying that John Paul sees more, like sees with God's eyes in the sense of knowing intimate details of other people's lives. He's not, he's not telling us that we're called to somehow, I, I felt maybe a little cautious about some of the, I want to know their hearts or something. Like the Lord, the Holy Spirit may reveal things to us about a person's heart in order either for us to respond well to someone mm-hmm. that we, is challenging for us or simply to be able to pray for them. But it's not that we are called to somehow see inside of people or or know things about them that are, are private information. It's it's a much more, I mean, it's, it's a totally respectful of the other person. In fact, it is respecting yes, the yes. other person. Uh, it, fundamentally, that's what it is. It's it's that ability to see this fallen yet redeemed by the Lord human being as precious in God's sight and to have that corresponding sense in ourselves of the preciousness of each human being. It's um, And I, I loved what you mentioned about the mysteries of the rosary in our journey. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that can be a way of helping us to see another person, say we are interacting with someone or seeing someone that's whose behavior is troubling us. Uh, one way to begin to see them is to ask the Lord, what, what mystery of the rosary is that person experiencing right now? You mm. know, like a, one of the sorrowful mysteries, or maybe we're envious of someone who appears to be experiencing joyful mysteries that we're not experiencing to to recognize that we're each on a journey and respect for that and uh, just honoring of it is is an essential part of this. I, I think that's a good clarification, Wendy, that when we talk about seeing another person, we're not talking about some vision of the other person that would somehow give us private knowledge of their inner right. life, but to, to see the dignity of the other, to see the other in light of the way the Lord sees that person and loves that person. I once heard it said, and it really struck me, it's stayed with me for years now, that behind the eyes of everyone you meet is a story that if you knew it, it would make you weep. 
and seeing other people rather than just looking at them takes that into account. Uh, life is hard. People have people have burdens. People have suffered so greatly, and when you when you see a person in that sense, like I'm just thinking of of this was just a few weeks ago. I was at the airport and I was getting a bagel at a bagel shop at, at an airport. And there was this man behind the counter who just looked like he had a rough life. And I saw that he was taking some extra care with my bagel. Mm -hmm. Like he was looking at me like, would you like a little extra cream cheese on that? And I was like, yeah, thanks. And when he handed me my bagel, I looked him in his eyes and I said, hey, thanks for taking good care of me today. I hope I hope you have a good day. And he flashed this smile mm -hmm. and I saw him. Yeah. I caught a glimpse of this real person. And it was it was a fraction of a second, but I know it changed his day and I know it changed mine. Mm. That's what happens when you you're not just looking at somebody, but you you see. Thank you, Lord, for those moments when we really see one another. We, we ask you, please, we're all the blind man in the gospel. Open our eyes to who we really are as indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gifts of life and love. And may each and every one of us become what we are. is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.